Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. Now, I realize we are in the middle of our theology class, but I thought this would be a good time to take a quick break and put out my recent presentation from Restoration Fellowship's 2019 Theological Conference titled The Trinity Before Nicaea. Now, many of you know that I do have a background in church history. That's what I got my master's degree in, and that's what I have spent a lot of my time developing, and this was certainly a delightful uh, research project that I uh, w- was able to complete and present for this conference. Now, next week, we will get back to theology, and we'll build up a biblical theology of the Holy Spirit. But for now, let's dive into the second and third centuries, those murky waters, and wrestle with the question of whether Christians believed in the Trinity before the year A.D. 325. If you prefer to watch the video version of this presentation, with all the slides mixed in, you can do so on YouTube. Just search for Restitutio, and you'll be able to find it there. Here now is my presentation, The Trinity Before Nicaea. I'm curious what the earliest Christians believed. And my driving question for this research project was, did Christians believe in the Trinity before A.D. 325 at the Council of Nicaea when the church decided, or a bunch of people decided, that the Son is of the same substance as the Father? That's my question. Did Christians believe in the Trinity before 325? And as soon as I asked that question, because I'm somebody who studies church history, I know that I'm going to face a major methodological hurdle because Christians before 325, there's still 300 years worth of Christianity there. Christians have written thousands of pages during that period. So I did probably what any one of you would do, and I did an internet search, and I looked up the phrase Trinity before Nicaea, thinking surely somebody has already done the work and can identify for us the proof texts from these different Christian authors in the first 300 years, and then I can just use that person's work. And so the first two search results I found on multiple search engines was a website called CARM.org, Christian Apologetics Research Ministry, and that is Matt Slick's website. And you can see it dominates the first two search results for Trinity before Nicaea. And I clicked on the first article there, which was called The Trinity Before Nicaea, I thought, oh, this is going to be the one. But it was only one quotation, and it was, it was pretty questionable. So I, I was kind of let down there. But then the second article I clicked on, Early Trinitarian Quotes, and I was delighted to find Matt Slick had written a little article here outlining six different Christian authors that he says provide definitive proof that Christians believed in the Trinity before Nicaea. So what a great place to, to start for research not to have to read thousands and maybe tens of thousands of pages, but to have this, this little post here. And, uh, you know, I don't pick Matt Slick because he's a, a, a church history scholar. I don't think he is, to my knowledge at least. Uh, but I, I pick him because he represents a standard evangelical position on this. And he is number one on that search phrase 
in multiple search engines. So if you're going to look into this question, this is who you're going to find. And uh, you can see here he quotes Polycarp, Justin Martyr, Ignatius of Antioch, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Origen. Those are his six sources right here. And so what I would like to do with you is go through each of these six different quotations that he provides. Some of them he provides more than one quote, but I want to go through all of them with you and really just ask the question, does this provide evidence that Christians believe in the Trinity before Nicaea? And uh, take it from there. So in order to really accomplish this, I had to nail down the definitional question, the defining question, what is the Trinity? Okay, because there are different Trinity theories out there. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of that, but there are different ways to think about the Trinity. And so I, I thought the fairest way to do it would be to judge Matt Slick's six Trinitarian quotes based on Matt Slick's own definition of the Trinity, which I found on his website. I was very delighted. He has a, a page there called the Trinity Chart where he had, defines the Trinity in his own words. And from that, I've extracted out these 10 points. One, God is a Trinity of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Two, each person is distinct from the other two. Three, each person is the one God. Four, the persons consist of one substance. Five, each person is eternal. Six, each person is equal to the others, presumably in status. Seven, each person is equally powerful. Eight, God does not exist without any of the three persons. Nine, Jesus has two natures in the hypostatic union. And number 10, the Holy Spirit is self-aware. So this is not from like a confession or a famous creed. This is from Matt Slick. This is his own definition. So we're going to judge his own quotes by his own definition and see how that helps us to kind of get at this question. Did Christians believe in the Trinity before 325? So you ready to go? You ready for Polycarp? All right, here, here we go. First up is a quote from Polycarp that says, O Lord God Almighty, I bless you and glorify you through the eternal and heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, through whom be glory to you with him and the Holy Spirit both now and forever. Well, there are a couple of problems here. Problem number one is that this isn't, this isn't, uh, written by Polycarp, so that's that's a little awkward. Uh, uh, it, it might it might be it might have been said by Polycarp. I, I'll give that as a, as a possibility. But this is Polycarp only wrote one thing that survived to today, a letter to the Philippians, uh, and this is from the martyrdom of Polycarp, which scholars do recognize has, is very early, and has a historic core. Uh, there are some more cinematic elements to it that. I think would lead you to believe it's been embellished significantly. But uh, it's not clear whether this prayer that Polycarp does in the midst of this book called The Martyrdom of Polycarp is actually historical to Polycarp. Okay, but let's just assume it is, right? Let's just give him that. Uh, what does this prayer here have to say about the Trinity? I mean, now remember, these are our 10 points that we want to find in these quotes. Which of these 10 points do we find in this quote here. I mean, there's nothing about person. There's nothing about eternality or equality or substance. You know, he's just praying. He says, oh, Lord God Almighty. Now, this is even better once you realize that this, this little part right here, we call that an ellipsis. Let's just expand that out a little bit and see what else Polycarp said. I have that for you there in yellow. It says, oh, Lord God Almighty. And this is the part that Slick omitted. Father, of your beloved and blessed son, Jesus Christ. So he, it's pretty clear who Polycarp is praying to. Uh, to whom is he praying? He's praying to Lord God Almighty, whom he identifies as the father of 
Jesus Christ, through whom we have received the knowledge of you, the God of angels and powers of all creation, of the whole race, and the righteous who live in your presence. I bless you. And I, there's more in there, but then it goes on. I glorify you through the eternal and heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ. I mean, this prayer could have easily been prayed by a Unitarian, by a Gnostic, by an Arian. I mean, it doesn't seem that he thinks that the Father is, or that the Son is at the same level as the Father here, because he identifies the Lord God as solely the Father of Jesus. So I'm going to go ahead and conclude that Polycarp was not a Trinitarian. But alas, we have five more. Number two, Justin Martyr. This is the quote from him. For in the name of God, the Father and Lord of the universe, and of our Savior Jesus Christ, and of the Holy Spirit, they then receive the washing with water. Now we've got a couple of points here that are important to notice. First up is the fact that this is not really much more than simply quoting Matthew 28, 19, right? And pretty much all Christians believe in Matthew 28, 19, whether they believe in the Trinity or they don't believe in the Trinity, Christians generally accept Matthew 28, 19 as evidenced by the, uh, the, the blank spot in the textual critical commentary uh, about that passage. There's actually no manuscript uh, variance there whatsoever. But that's another, that's another subject that we could talk about. But look at this little part that Justin puts in. Of course, Matthew 28, 19 says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, right? You guys know that. But what, what does Justin add in? He adds in this part where it says the Father and Lord of the universe. So he's adding it a little bit more to specify who he thinks God is. And this is not a tripartite God. He says God, let me read it again. For in the name of God, the Father and Lord of the universe, and of our Savior Jesus Christ, and of the Holy Spirit. This, this quote is evidence that Justin believed that the Father was the only true God. It's, it's, not, it's not a good Trinitarian quote, I would, I would suggest, just ever so gently. Uh, so I would, I would conclude that Justin Martyr, at least on the strength of this quote, is not a Trinitarian. Scholars know this. Justin Martyr is a subordinationist. In one place, his first apology, chapter 8, he calls Jesus in the second place. He says Jesus in the second place to God. So we press on. Third up, we have Ignatius of Antioch. He writes, In Christ Jesus our Lord, by whom and with whom be glory and power to the Father, with the Holy Spirit forever. So uh, we have a couple of problems here that I want to mention. First of all, as with Polycarp, this is not actually Ignatius. This is a later forged document called the martyrdom of Ignatius, uh, generally recognized to be inauthentic by people that do church history. And, uh, but once again, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to press that. We'll just, let's just look at it for what it is and see, see what we think. Where's the Trinity here? Where is it? In Christ Jesus our Lord, by whom and with whom be glory and power to the Father, with the Holy Spirit forever. Where's the Trinity there? I mean, you can't just mention Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let me give you an analogy. Think of, think of uh, the task of trying to prove somebody is a patriot, somebody's patriotic, Okay. You know, just, just citing Abraham Lincoln or George Washington, what if, what if you just were making a factual statement about that person? It doesn't prove that you're a patriot or not. It just proves that you're mentioning that person. So, so it is here, just mentioning Christ Jesus our Lord or the Father and the Holy Spirit, that none of this proves that this person believed in the Trinity. And we have another quote from the same book. This is the Martyrdom of Ignatius, chapter 2, where this author, probably not an Ignatius, says, Thou art in error, when thou callest the demons of the nations God. For there is but one God, 
who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that are in them, and one Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, whose kingdom may I enjoy. does not sound very Trinitarian, whoever this was that wrote this. On to the next Ignatius quote from his epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 7, where this is the long recension for those of you familiar with Ignatius's different, uh, the different versions of him. He writes, we have also as a physician, the Lord our God, Jesus the Christ, the only begotten Son and Word before time began, but who afterward became also man of Mary the Virgin, for the Word was made flesh, being incorporeal. He was in the body, being impassable. He was in a passable body, being immortal. He was in a mortal body, being life. He became subject to corruption, that he might free our souls from death and corruption and heal them, and might restore them to health when they were diseased with ungodliness and wicked lusts. Whew, that's a mouthful. Uh, so, first of all, I just want to mention that this is the, the uh, fr from the, the epistles of Ignatius, this is uh, very much a, a discussed and debated question, uh, which Ignatius is Ignatius? Because there's, there are lots of forgeries of Ignatius' epistles, and we have really three versions, the short version, the middle version, and the long version. Many scholars are, are convinced that the long version is a later Arian forge, forgery, of Ignatius's earlier writings, and it's just so ironic that Slick is going to quote from the Arian version to prove the Trinity, because if we back up just one sentence, we will find the following. But our physician is the only true God, the unbegotten and unapproachable, the Lord of all, the Father and begetter of the only begotten Son. We have also, as a physician, the Lord our God, Jesus the Christ, the only begotten Son and Word before time began, and it goes on from there. So this is clearly an Arian position that this author is laying out, most, most likely uh, corrupting an earlier form that Ignatius had, but it's not good evidence for the doctrine of the Trinity. I would give it an F. Ignatius, from the quotes that we've seen here, is not a Trinitarian. Now, on the question of calling Jesus God, I will return to that later, okay, because that's, that's an important subject we need to get to. But lots of different kinds of Christians and Christologies will, will, will use the phrase, Jesus is God, but they mean different things by it. So you can't just quote Jesus is God as if that means he believed Jesus is God in a Trinitarian way. All right, on to the next one. It's going to get a little more interesting here. Irenaeus. The church, though dispersed throughout the whole world, even to the ends of the earth, has received from the apostles and their disciples this faith. One God, the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are in them, and in one Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who became incarnate for our salvation, and in the Holy Spirit, who proclaimed through the prophets the dispensations of God, and the advents, and the birth from a virgin, and the passion, and the resurrection from the dead, and the ascension, these are long quotes, sorry, you just have to bear with me here, and the ascension into heaven, and the flesh of the beloved Christ Jesus our Lord, and his manifestation from heaven, and the glory of the Father, to gather all things in one, and to raise up anew all flesh of the human, whole human race, in order that to Christ Jesus our Lord, and God, and Savior, and King, according to the will of the invisible Father, Every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth that every tongue should confess to him that he should execute just judgments toward all. Question, where's the Trinity? Did anybody spot it? I missed it. I saw where he said there's one God, the Father. I saw where Irenaeus said there's also one Christ Jesus that he believes in, apart from the one God, the Father. 
There was this one little interesting part here where he calls Jesus Lord and God. We have many of uh, his other statements that are, that are really uh, strong in the other direction here, not in a Trinitarian direction. This is against Heresies 192, Irenaeus says, For when John, proclaiming one God, the Almighty, and one Jesus Christ, the only begotten, by whom all things were made, declares that this was the Son of God. So look, who does he think God is? The one God is the Almighty. And, then you have in a separate category, and one Jesus Christ. Sounds like Irenaeus thinks the one God is just the Father. Against Heresies 391 says, The Lord himself handing down to his disciples that he, the Father, is the only God and Lord, who alone is God and ruler of all. Question, is that an ambiguous statement? What's confusing about that? There's nothing confusing about that. He says, look, he, the Father, is the only God and Lord who alone is God. I mean, what else do you want him to say to prove to you that he believes that the Father is the only one who's God? That's what Irenaeus believed. Now, he also called Jesus God, but it's in a different sense, and we'll get to that later. Against Heresies 364, Irenaeus says, Wherefore, I do also call upon the Lord God of Abraham, and God of Isaac, and God of Jacob, and Israel, who art the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God, who through the abundance of thy mercy has had a favor toward us, that we should know thee, who has made heaven and earth, who rulest over all, who art the only and the true God, above whom there is none other God. I mean, once again, he's, he's, he's laboring the point. The only and true God. There's no other God other than he. By our Lord Jesus Christ, the governing power of the Holy Spirit, give to every reader of this book to know thee, that thou art God alone, to be strengthened in thee, and to avoid every heretical and godless and impious doctrine. Summary. Irenaeus doesn't sound like a Trinitarian. He doesn't talk like a Trinitarian, and we've seen no evidence that he believed in the Trinity whatsoever. However, we have seen evidence provided for you on this slide here from the same book that he identifies over and over the Father as the one who is above all. This is the doctrine we call subordinationism, that the Father is superior to the Son. And so we conclude that Irenaeus is not a Trinitarian either. One last quote against Heresies 5.18.2. He says, And thus one God the Father is declared, who is above all, and through all, and in all. The Father is indeed above all, and he is the head of Christ. But the word is through all things and is himself the head of the church, while the Spirit is in us all, and he is the living water, which the Lord grants to those who rightly believe in him, to love him, and who know that there is one Father who is above all and through all and in us all. This is not fuzzy. This is, this is clear as day. He thought the Father, it was superior. So Irenaeus, I conclude, is not a Trinitarian either. Now we get to Tertullian. Now, now it's going to get really exciting because those of you familiar with church history know that he's the first one to use the term Trinitas, which is the Latin word for Trinity. So uh, obviously Tertullian believed in the Trinity because he invented the word Trinity, at least in Latin. Uh, so this is going to be all kinds of fun. This is the quote we have from his Against Praxius that Slick provides. We define that there are two, the Father and the Son, and three with the Holy Spirit, and this number is made by the pattern of salvation. All right, so if we're looking for the Trinity, we should start getting excited here a little bit, right? Because we have, we have three. At least, at least we finally have three. All those quotes we've seen so far, we didn't even have the word three. All right, this is good. This is good if we're looking for the Trinity. And this is the number is made by the pattern of salvation, which belongs about unity and Trinity. Oh, yeah. This is, this is the stuff we're looking for, right? Interrelating the three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, 
They are three, not in dignity, but in degree, not in substance, but in form, not in power, but in kind. There are, they are of one substance and power because there is one God from whom these degrees, forms, and kinds devolve in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I mean, it really, really looks pretty promising if you're looking for evidence on the Trinity. We have the word Trinity. We have the words one substance. That's that uh, homosia, right, that you find later at Nicaea of one substance. We have uh, one God in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I mean, come on, sign me up. This guy, this guy's a Trinitarian, right? Not so fast. Not so fast. You have to, you have to excuse my, my drama. Try to, try to make church history somewhat exciting for you, okay? Uh, somewhat exciting. So it might, might involve a little misdirection over here. But uh, all right, Th- this, this term Trinity here is, is interesting to me. You notice how it's lowercase? I don't know if that's a Matt Slick typo or if that was in the version he was working with, but it's actually a lowercase t on Trinity. And uh, the word Trinity, Trinitas, triad in uh, English is probably a better translation. It's just a grouping of three things or persons or whatever. It's a grouping of three. And so, you know, if you say, well, I love love, uh, swimming and running and biking, you would say, oh, that's 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 a good Trinity you have there. Right? I mean, it's nothing theological about it. It's just a collection of, of three things, as evidenced by the first guy who used the term Trinity in Greek, which was Theophilus of Antioch, probably in the 170s, in his to Autolycus, chapter 2.15, says, But the moon wanes monthly and in a manner dies, being a type of man. Then it is born again and is crescent for a pattern of the future resurrection. In like manner, also, the three days which were before the luminaries are types of the Trinity, triados, of God and his word and his wisdom. What do you think about that? That's interesting, huh? We don't have three persons. We have God and his word and his wisdom. His word, it's not clear here that his word refers to a person. God has his, his word that he speaks, his wisdom that he uses to think with, right? These are, these are attributes of God. He's got, he's got a tri- his trinity doesn't have the Holy Spirit in it, right? What's, what's, which one's missing here, right? Sophia, wisdom, is not, is not the same as the Holy Spirit. And yet he's, he's able to use this, this term, trinity, triados, as a reference to a, a grouping of three, the first of which is God, and the second of which is his word, the third of which is his wisdom. So um, let's go back to, to uh, Tertullian here. So we, we have to be careful not to read Tertullian anachronistically, reading in later Trinitarian thoughts into his words. We have to let him define what he means by his words, okay? So this is from the same book that Slick quoted from, Against Praxius, chapter 9. And uh, we read here that the Father is not the same as the Son since they differ one from another in the mode of their being. For the Father is the entire substance, but the Son is a derivation and portion of the whole, as he himself acknowledges my Father is greater than I. In the psalm, his inferiority is described as being a little lower than the angels. Thus, the Father is distinct from the Son, being greater than the Son, inasmuch as he who begets is one, and he who is begotten is another, he too who sends is one, and he too who is sent is another, and he again who makes is one, and he through whom the thing is made is another. All right, what do we have in this quote? Number one, he says, 
they differ. The father and the son differ. Okay, Sean, sure they differ, but that's because the son had, had, to have, uh, had to be incarnate, and so he's functionally subordinate to the father. That's not what Tertullian is saying here. He's saying in their being, they differ. He goes on. The son is a derivation. The son is not original. He's a derivation, a portion of the whole. This is not the doctrine of the Trinity, as you know, really anybody understands it, to, to my knowledge. Uh, and then he goes on to say, the father is distinct from the son, being greater than the son. This is, this is not co-equal. This is not uh, co-eternal or consubstantial. This is not the doctrine of the Trinity. What about everyone else? I came across this tantalizing quote from Tertullian. The simple, that's like people that, that are not Tertullian. He's, he's educated, right? So the simple is like everybody else. The simple indeed, I will not call them unwise and unlearned. He's so humble, isn't he? Um, I will not call them unwise and unlearned, who always constitute the majority of believers, are startled at the dispensation of the three in one, on the ground that their very rule of faith withdraws them from the world's plurality of gods to the one and only true God, not understanding that although he is the one only God, he must yet be believed in his own economia, economy. The numerical order and distribution of the Trinity they assume to be a division of the unity, whereas the unity which derives the Trinity out of its own self is so far from being destroyed that it is actually supported by it. They are constantly throwing out against us that we are preachers of two gods and three gods, while they take to themselves preeminently the credit of being worshipers of the one God. There's some good stuff in here. All right, first up, what do we see? He's talking about most people. He's talking about most Christians here. The majority, he says, of believers are startled at Tertullian's theory of this whole three in one and different substances. And it's not quite what we would later call the Trinity, but it's, it's definitely an innovation. It's speculative. It's, it's uh, creative theology, we might call it. Uh, and he says people don't, like, people don't like this idea. You know, it's just because they're dumb. But... You know, they, they don't like this idea. And he's saying the majority don't like his idea. And then he goes on to say that the majority of Christians in his town, Carthage, North Africa, 3rd century, what do they call Tertullian? They say, Tertullian, hey, buddy, you're worshiping two gods. You're worshiping three gods, not us. Not us. We're, gonna, we're worshipers of the one God. That's an interesting quotation, isn't it? A little historical fragment there that we find. So in conclusion on Tertullian... What we find is that, from the sounds of this, most believers in this area at this time were Unitarian. Because that's what it means, worshiping only one God, and they're rejecting this two- or three-part God. And two, they thought Tertullian's ideas were unacceptable innovations. They thought he was inventing things. He wasn't being a conservative. He wasn't conserving what had been passed down. What he was presenting to them contradicted their rule of faith. The rule of faith is a conservative thing that's been passed down. As, as the church fathers typically use it. So he believed the Father, Son, and Spirit were of the same substance, is true, but not the same amount for each. And so he also did not believe in co-equality, which means that in the end, Tertullian, who coined the word Trinity in Latin, is actually not a Trinitarian. All right, on to the last one, origin. 
We've got one more source before we ask some questions about method, because I think we're, we're, we're getting let down over and over again. We keep thinking we're going to find that golden gem. You know, this is the number one result on Google. I mean, how, it can't possibly be wrong. You know, we have, to, we have to find it. And so here we have origin. And this, this if you're looking for the Trinity, this is going to wet your whistle, let me tell you. Let me tell you. All right, so these are three quotes that Slick provides to us from De Principis, which is a sort of snobby title for uh, uh, Origen's book, On First Principles. That's the English version of it. Um, if anyone would say, so first up, if anyone would say that the word of God or the wisdom of God had a beginning, let him beware lest he direct his impiety rather against the unbegotten father, since he denies that he was always father and that he has, has always begotten the word and that he has always had wisdom in all previous times or ages or whatever can be imagined in priority. There can be no more ancient title of the almighty God than that of father, and it is through the son that he is the father. What is he arguing for, arguing for here? That the son is eternal. And if you don't agree that the son is eternal, then you're saying the, that the father wasn't a father before the Son came into existence. And that, every, every Platonist knows. You can't have a change in God. Uh, so he says that's, that's impious. You can't accuse God of changing from not being a father to becoming a father. Therefore, the Son has to be eternal. That's the strength of that argument there. All right, number two quote says, For if the Holy Spirit were not eternally as he is, and had received knowledge at some time, and then became the Holy Spirit, this were the case, the Holy Spirit would never be reckoned in the unity of the Trinity along with the unchangeable Father and His Son, unless He had always been the Holy Spirit. So now we're looking for the eternity of the Holy Spirit, and we have this idea of unity of the Trinity. So this is sounding very uh, uncannily, really, Trinitarian, uh, these, these quotes here. Much better than Tertullian. Uh, then Origen goes on to say in the last one, Moreover, nothing in the Trinity can be called greater or less. Co-equality. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. Since the fountain of divinity alone contains all things by his word and reason, and by the spirit of his mouth sanctifies all things which are worthy of sanctification. So if I take Matt Slick's original ten points on what he says the Trinity is, and I take from this these quotations that he just provided, origins points, what do we have? Number one, Matt Slick says, God is a trinity of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Origin agrees. The Father Word slash son slash wisdom and spirit use, he uses personal pronouns for them. Number two, each person is distinct from the others. Well, origin agrees. The father is distinct from the son is distinct from the spirit. Number three, uh, each person is the one God. Origin says father, son, and spirit in the unity of the Trinity. Pretty similar. Number four, the persons consist of one substance. He doesn't have that. It's not mentioned. Number five, each person is eternal. He says the word and the spirit are eternal. Number six, each person is equal to the others. Number six, for origin, nothing in the Trinity can be called greater or less. Number seven, each person is equally powerful, not mentioned. Number eight, God does not exist without any of the three persons. Origen says, it is impious to deny the eternity of the Son, since that would mean the Father wasn't always the Father. You need all of the persons all the time. Uh, number nine, Jesus has two natures in the hypostatic union. Origen's not that fancy. He doesn't get into it. Number ten, the Holy Spirit is self-aware. Origen uses the word he to refer to the Holy Spirit, which sounds like a personal pronoun to me. So what do we have here? We have, you know, if I had a bell up here, I'd be like, ding, 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 ding. These three quotes that Slick provides, unquestionably Trinitarian. You know, just wouldn't, wouldn't want to argue with that. You know, I think, I think we should be excited to have found something, okay? Because um, I know some of you are getting a little, little depressed there. Like, Sean, where's, 
Show me the money. You know, where is it, it going to be? But uh, here's the problem with, with Origen. First of all, Origen wrote a lot. By one estimate, it was 6,000 rolls, or roughly chapters in our equivalent. Uh, of course, they called them books, but we call them chapters. Uh, at one point in his life, Origen had seven stenographers taking down dictation in turns. So fast was he churning out material. I mean, this guy wrote commentaries on everything. He wrote sermons on everything. He wrote um, a, the first parallel Bible, the Hexapla, six columns. He's got the Hebrew and the, all these Greek versions. Right? I mean, he was a real scholar, trained in the finest uh, institution of his time in Alexandria. So uh, a lot of his stuff didn't survive, but a lot of it did. You know, enough of his stuff survived so that we don't, we're not just stuck with these three quotes that I showed you. We have other material to consider. So let's, let's just consider that ever so briefly. This is from the same document on first principles, from the same book, uh, chapter, uh, book one, chapter three. This is Greek fragment number nine. And we read the following. The God and Father who holds the universe together is superior to every being that exists. For he imparts to each one from his own existence that which each one is. The Son being less than the Father is superior to rational creatures alone. For he is second to the Father. <laughs> you can't say that. That's against the rules. He goes on. The Holy Spirit is still less and dwells within the saints alone. So that in this way, the power of the Father is greater than that of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And that of the Son is more than that of the Holy Spirit. And in turn, the power of the Holy Spirit exceeds that of every other holy being. So what we have here is a whole lot of subordinationism. That's what that is. How many times do we see it? Father's superior. Then he says, the Son is less than the Father. Then he says the Son is second to the Father. Then he says the Spirit is less. And then he says the Father is greater than the Son and the Spirit. And this is clearly subordinationism. Furthermore, in another book against Celsus, 8.15, Origen writes, For we who say that the visible world is under the government to him who created all things do thereby declare that the Son is not mightier than the Father, but inferior to him. And this belief we ground on the saying of Jesus himself, The Father who sent me is greater than I. And none of us is so insane as to affirm that the Son of Man is Lord over God. But when we regard the Savior as God, the Word, and wisdom, and righteousness, and truth, we certainly do say that he has dominion over all things which have been subjected to him in his capacity, but not that his dominion extends over the God and Father who rules over all. I mean, look at these statements from Origen in this book against Celsus. It's plain as day. Origen thought God, the Father, was superior to the Son. So then, if that's true, why in the world did he say earlier they're all equal? Let's go through a little bit of a timeline, shall we? All right. So Origen was born about 186. And in 225, he completed this magnum opus on first principles. It's the first systematic theology book ever written. He died in 253. And you can see the timeline's just getting started. Like, he dies in the beginning of the timeline. It's kind of funny, right? He had, his works have a lot of an afterlife, as it turns out. So in 300, by the early 4th century, Methodius criticizes Origen for eternity of creation, pre-existence of souls, and a spiritual resurrection body. In 325, of course, the Council of Nicaea anathematizes subordinationism. That was the whole point of Nicaea. The Council of Nicaea's whole point was to say 
The, the son is on the same level as the father. They are, they are equal. They are of the same substance. Uh, and so that is something that goes against what Origen, we just, we just saw him saying. But then there's this 60-year battle where the pro-Nicenes and the anti-Nicene Christians both claim Origen for support for their position. He's at the heart of the whole debate that lasts for 60 years, from 325 to 381. And then in the end, Emperor Theodosius made Nicene doctrine law. But that's not the end of the story for Origen, because even before that happened, a heresy hunter named Epiphanius of Salamis led a crusade against Origen's writings. From 375 to 395, a 20-year crusade against Origen in print, by petition, and through preaching. And at one point, this Epiphanius travels all the way to Jerusalem, because in Jerusalem you have the Bishop John at this time. This is a late, late 4th century, almost 5th century. You have the Bishop John of Jerusalem. You have Jerome, a famous translator of the Bible into Latin, which was later then called the Vulgate. And then you also have Rufinus. And Rufinus and Jerome, they're like big-time big translators, really important people to get things into Latin if you want you know, a lot of people to read your, your works, if they're written in Greek, you need, you need translators to do that. And so Epiphanius shows up at church, and he, he just basically preaches against Origen. Now, never mind the fact Origen's been dead well over a century, and he's getting preached against. This uh, Epiphanius, he's, he's an older man, and, he, and he's just on a rampage against Origen, and he flips Jerome. He flips Jerome. After this, after this meeting with, with, uh, at Jerusalem, Jerome no longer supports Origen, won't translate his works. Actually, that's not true. He does translate one more thing just to prove how bad Origen is and how you shouldn't listen to him. Uh, but he, after this, he's no longer an Originist. He's an anti-Originist. Whereas Rufinus responds by translating on first principles in the year 397 into Latin. That's the book that we had these juicy quotes from in the beginning that made us think that Origen's a Trinitarian. After that happens, just three years later, Bishop Theophilus condemns Origen at a council in Alexandria. I'm not going to give you all the history of Origen's after effects, but I will conclude with Emperor Justinian in the year 543. This is, what, 300 years after the book was written. Emperor Justinian condemns Origen as a heretic and orders all of his books to be burned. So that's, that's the afterlife. And so this... this stage right here in the middle where Rufinus translates this book, and this is the translation that we have that survives, this is one from Rufinus, is in the midst of controversy. Furthermore, it's at the very tail end of the fourth century. The Trinity had been established for decades, right, and, and really made law since 381. So what does that mean? Well, let me, let me have G.W. Butterworth tell you what that means. He's a translator of Origen's first principle. He says about Rufinus, the guy who preserved the book in Latin, fear of heresy, this is just like the, the best insult ever. You ready? Fear of heresy is with him a stronger motive than love of truth. <sighs> May that never be said of you. You should never fear people more than your love of the truth. That's a, good, that's a good line there, but sometimes you find these little gems. Fear of heresy, this is about Rufinus, is with him a stronger motive than love of truth. He has shown himself willing to alter the text or to omit portions of it on no evidence whatever and for no purpose except to conciliate the prejudices of his readers and to give greater authority to his translation. Butterworth continues, this is all from his introduction, 
of these 43 Greek fragments that have survived. So what we have is the Latin translation of Rufinus. We have it, okay? And then we have 43 little Greek pieces of on first principles that have made it to today. He says 14 are entirely missing from the text of Rufinus. So the, we, have, we have Greek parts of on first principles that literally don't exist in the Latin translation. Rufinus cut them out. He said, I, no, no, I'm not going to translate that. And then he says, nine are shortened, altered, or incomplete. Five are inaccurately translated. And the remaining 15 are given with reasonable, though not always strict, accuracy. But what I love about this whole issue is that Rufinus himself wasn't coy. He tells us what he was doing in his preface. In his translation of Origen's first principles, Rufinus himself says, Wherever, therefore, I have found in his books, Origen's books, anything contrary to the reverent statements made by him about the Trinity and other places, I have either omitted it as a corrupt and interpolated passage or reproduced it in a form that agrees with the doctrine, which I have often found him affirming elsewhere. Ladies and gentlemen, this is why when Slick quotes those three quotes from on first principles, it sounds uncannily Trinitarian. And that's why in these other places that I quoted to you from, he sounds like a subordinationist. Rufinus corrupted Origen to make him sound orthodox. And he says he did it. He's not even shy. Origen was not a Trinitarian. Where does that leave us? Where, where, where does that leave us? We, we saw Polycarp. No evidence that he believed in the Trinity. Justin Martyr, no evidence he believed in the Trinity. Ignatius of Antioch, we didn't even get you know, anything really historical there, but what we had still didn't believe in the Trinity. Uh, Irenaeus, we had nothing for him. You know, he's clearly a subordinationist. Tertullian, he has an interesting theory, but it's not, it's not what we would call orthodox from a Trinitarian perspective. And now Origen, yeah, sure, if you quote the late 4th century, 397 edition of his work that has been uh, bowderlized to sound very Nicene. Yeah, sure, then he's a Trinitarian. But that's really Rufinus. That's not Origen. Origen is a subordinationist. And that's why the Arians grabbed him. The, the, the Nicenes liked Origen because he invented eternal generation, which is a necessary component. The anti-Nicenes liked him because he taught that the Father was a superior to the Son. Um, and I also have a number of other quotes and, and information in the, in the paper if you want to go deeper. You know, obviously I'm skipping around because I don't want to uh, go too long here with you. All right, so we've looked at all these things, and, and how are we left? We are left empty-handed. Now, of course, this doesn't mean no one believed in the Trinity before Nicaea. But it does mean that everything we've looked at so far, the six big shots that we were hoping to find the Trinity... None of them actually had it. So I, I, had, I came up with this analogy. It's an Instagram analogy. Anybody here know what Instagram is? Okay, there's like five people and, you know, no. Okay, you've, you've heard of it before. It's been around for a little while. It's a social media service. Let's say someone in the year 2019 says the statement, I love using Instagram. Well, that's the, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar, it's a social media app used to take pictures, apply filters, and then share them with followers. What if a lady in 2005 says, I love using Instagram? What would that mean? Instagram did not exist until 2010. There had to be some explanation, right? Look, if, you, if somebody in 2019 says, I love using Instagram, 
That's no big deal. We know Instagram is a, is, a, is a company, it's a service, it's an app on your phone, right? There's nothing interesting about that statement. But if somebody in 2005 says it, whoa, this thing didn't exist for five years. How could she love using Instagram? Well, maybe she's come across a recipe to instantly cook chickpeas, also called grams. <laughs> Instagrams. Or maybe she just got married and she got an instant grandmother out of the arrangement. An Instagram. You could probably come up with other examples of what Instagram in 2005 could possibly mean other than these right here. But the point is we'd have to come up with some sort of explanation for what she means by Instagram before Instagram existed. So it is with the Trinity. You can't just say Trinity before the Trinity exists and we're supposed to all believe that that means the same thing that they worked out later. Well, think about it, think about it some more with me. What if somebody really did want to prove it and, and they said, you know what, I believe there's a conspiracy on Wikipedia. Instagram didn't start in 2010. I believe it did start in 20 or 2005, and I'm going to prove it. How would that person go about doing it? Well, they would probably find quotations from people in 2005 saying things like, um, I love to take photos. I love to take digital photos. And they would find them saying things like, I love to uh, adjust my photos or put filters on my photos. And they would find them saying something like, I wanted to share them instantly with my friends. Well, those of you who were here in the 90s can relate to this. But you know what? We actually had digital cameras in the 90s. Forget 2005, okay? And we had Photoshop since the 80s, in fact. So we, we've been applying filters to photos all through the 90s. No big deal. And we had AOL Instant Messenger at the end of the 90s, didn't we? So, you know, you could find quotes of people saying, oh, I just love taking digital pictures and applying filters and sharing them with my friends online in 2005. And it doesn't necessarily prove Instagram existed back then, does it? Because we could do that using other services. Furthermore, what if, somebody, what if they also found that person saying, I love to share it on social media? That would be the clincher, right? Pictures, filters, sharing with friends, social media, it's gotta be Instagram. Well, guess what else existed in 2005? MySpace and an early version of Facebook. So that, again, it doesn't prove anything. To prove Instagram existed in 2005, we would need evidence that these components, taking photos, adding filters, sharing them online, were done as part of the Instagram service. Perhaps there was an early beta test of Instagram five years before the real version came out. It would be a tough but not impossible case to prove. And the burden of proof would be on the person positing the existence of Instagram before 2010. So it is with the Trinity. We know the Trinity didn't emerge fully formed until the fourth century. Some might even argue that it was later than the 4th century. But we'll just say 4th century for right now. We know it wasn't codified until the Creed of Constantinople, the Constantinopolitan Creed of 381. Not the Nicene Creed, which didn't include the Holy Spirit in 325. It's the Creed of Constantinople in 381. That's what we know historically. So you want to show me quotes about the Trinity saying, oh, well, he believed in Jesus. Well, Gnostics believed in Jesus too. Oh, he believed, um, he believed they are of one substance. Well, what do you think modalists believe? Right? Or the Manichaeans. Arius makes his point to his bishop. Well, I, I don't want to say homoousia because that phrase is, is used by Manny and the Manichaeans. And that's a, that's a heresy phrase. I don't want to use that. 
right? Which then later becomes the central phrase that people use. We have components, but no actual trinity. And furthermore, what did we see with these six different authors that we looked at? We saw not only uh, a lack of evidence, but several statements that directly contradicted the later doctrine of the Trinity. So you can't possibly be a Trinitarian if what you say contradicts <laughs> the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, so we have, we have some theories in that direction, but we can't presuppose the Trinity in order to prove the Trinity. That's just not right. Uh, now, I realize this is a very limited foray into church history. We just looked at these six authors. A, a proper study would involve several years, probably a team of researchers, to go through everything, catalog it all objectively, and put it into different categories. And that would be uh, obviously like a, a PhD level research project or just like a regular weekend for Keegan. But um, <laughs> having said that, there is someone who has done such a thing. And his name is Alvin Lampson. This is what he writes at the conclusion of his 395-page book. He says, after what has been said in the foregoing 395 pages, we are prepared to reassert in conclusion that the modern doctrine of the Trinity is not found in any document or relic belonging to the church of the first three centuries. And look at how thorough he is. Letters, art, usage, theology, worship, Creed, hymn, chant, doxology, ascription, commemorative rite, and festive observance, so far as remains or any record of them are preserved, coming down from early times, are, as regards this doctrine, an absolute blank. They testify, so far as they testify at all, to the supremacy of the Father, the only true God, and to the inferior and derived nature of the Son. There is nowhere among these remains, a co-equal tw trinity. The cross is there, Christ is there as a good shepherd, the Father's hand placing a crown or victor's wreath on his head, but no undivided three, co-equal, infinite, self-existent, and eternal. This was a conception to which the age had not arrived. It was of later origin. But, now, uh, first of all, I want to say, I'm willing to dismiss Lamson's conclusion if somebody brings forth evidence of somebody believing in the Trinity in the first three centuries. I mean, I, I don't have to necessarily agree one way or the other with what any church history person wrote, right? I mean, that would be like me taking you to the, the local Christian bookstore and saying, you know, you have to agree with all these books. All those books don't agree with themselves, right? We Christians have written books from the beginning. There's nothing sacred about the books we wrote in the first three centuries. The books of Christianity that are sacred are the ones that are inspired and authoritative and we call Bible. All right. The rest of it all is just what people thought it all meant or how they worked it out in their lives. And they, we've contradicted ourselves all throughout history, different, different groups and so on. And so it's, there's no pressure here. There's no pressure. If somebody believes one thing or believes another thing, it's history. You just say, oh, so-and-so believed that. Okay. So if somebody wants to produce that evidence, I'm definitely willing to hear it. But what about the more basic question of the deity of Christ? That's a much more basic question, isn't it? Uh, the problem with that, as I mentioned before, is that you can't just say Jesus is God and say that must mean that he's of one substance with the Father, co-equal and co-eternal, because you didn't say that. Lots of Christians mean different things when they say Jesus is God. You can be a biblical Unitarian and say Jesus is God. You could be an Arian, a subordinationist, and believe that Jesus is God. You can be a Gnostic. You can be a modalist. You can be Everybody says it in one way or another. Or even look at this, the Hebrew mindset had no problem applying the word God 
in a secondary sense, to Moses, angels, the divine council, Israel's judges, the Davidic king, the belly, those who receive the word of God, and even Satan. In the Greco-Roman world, furthermore, they called a wide range of beings gods, including the pantheon of high gods, regional gods, deceased emperors, and a whole host of other lower-level divinities. Now, let's say you're telling a random person in the second century about Jesus. Just think with me for a moment, this little thought experiment. You live in the second century in the Roman Empire. You're telling just a, your average Greco-Roman pagan about Jesus. Right? They worship all these different statues. They believe the, the heavens are populated with all these spiritual beings. And you're telling this person about Jesus. You tell her that Jesus came back to life after crucifixion. He is living in heaven at the most powerful and honored position next to the Father. A Greco-Roman person would have no problem calling much lesser beings gods. In other words, God was a flexible word during the early centuries of Christianity, and we need to take that into account when trying to classify what patristic authors believed about Jesus. Now, on to one, uh, one last issue here. There is a tendency uh, among church historians to say, so-and-so was trying to articulate the Trinity, but he, didn't, he just didn't have the language for it yet. <laughs> or so-and-so really believed in the Trinity, but they just couldn't quite explain it. Okay, these kinds of, these kinds of assessments and, and sort of editorializing, and it's all throughout the literature, you know, if you read any kind of like histor historical theology textbook, this is what they say over and over again, and it's just like infuriating. That's not how we do history, people. How we do history is you say what the person said. What did that person believe? Okay, now if you want to judge it based on what was going to come later and say, oh, it's not, it's not the same as that, or it is the same, whatever, that's fine. But you don't say, oh, well, they really believe this other thing. They just didn't have any way to say that. That's like saying people in the 1800s believe in relativity theory. They just didn't have Einstein to give them that word yet. No, they didn't believe in relativity theory. Einstein invented that. I mean, he discovered it in 1905 in the Swiss Patent Office, right? Or quantum theory. People in the early 1900s didn't believe in quantum theory. You know why? Because it, it wasn't discovered yet. It's not that you just didn't have words for it. <laughs> Anyhow, that's just a, a little, little correction there. Uh, Tertullian did not believe in the Trinity, he did not believe in the Trinity. He had a Trinity theory. He had a theory, but it did not agree with what we call the Trinity as defined earlier in this presentation. He believed that the Father alone was the supreme God. He believed that the Father had more divine stuff than the Son. So it's dishonest to label Tertullian a Trini Trinitarian. But I bet you look online, you search for Tertullian and Trinity, and you will find thousands of, of little offhand remarks saying, our Tertullian was the first Trinitarian. He coined the term Trinity. He, look at this, one substance, right? Well, read the rest of the book. Read the rest of the book. No pressure to take him as a Trinitarian anyhow, because, it, okay, he wasn't a Trinitarian. That's, that's not the end of the world. doesn't mean the Trinity's false. doesn't mean the Trinity's true. It just means that he wasn't one. Uh, so we don't need to squeeze everyone into our predetermined mold. Let them be who they are. So I've got, I've got much more to say about this. Take a look at the, the paper if you have it, or you can get it online at restitutio.org uh, articles. But I just want to conclude with the following. It's time for the Matt Slicks of the world to drop this myth of Trinitarian primacy and just admit that Trinity theories evolved slowly over the first 400 years after Christ until we ended up with the language of the Constantinopolitan Creed of 381, 
Augustine's on the Trinity in 415, and the so-called Athanasian Creed of probably around 500, well after Athanasius was dead, by the way. That doesn't mean the Trinity is wrong, but it does move it from authoritative apostolic tradition to one of several models of understanding the Bible. The idea is that the scriptures don't explicitly teach the Trinity, but the Trinity doctrine is the best explanation of what they say about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But if it was the best explanation, if the Trinity is the best explanation for what the Bible says about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, why didn't anyone see it that way during the first three centuries? This is a good question to leave you with. If you are researching this issue, I encourage you to read the New Testament with fresh eyes, approaching the text from a first century mindset rather than a creedal one. After all, the truth has nothing to fear. Thank you. I just wanted to read out a quick couple of items of feedback before closing out this episode. I posted about Michael Heiser's take on the kingdom last March, and just recently, Miranda commented on that blog post. She wrote, already but not yet, kingdom now, kingdom future. I think we should focus on both. This will enable us as Christ's representatives to be the kind of people best qualified to help others to join with us and follow Jesus as we strive to reflect the qualities of Christ and all his teachings. In this way, we will progress towards the coming kingdom when Jesus will return to set up his kingdom on earth, where we will rule with him over the nations and everything wrong with the world will be put right. And as Heiser puts it, quote, Eden globalized, end quote. Miranda, I certainly appreciate your both focus as opposed to saying the kingdom's already here or it's only in the future. Uh, I will point out that just last night, on a Facebook group, I was interacting with somebody who was talking about John 14 and the the, uh, place where Jesus says that he goes to prepare a place for us and he will come and receive us and so on. And I suggested that that was him returning to establish a kingdom that where he is, we will be also, i.e. on earth in the kingdom. And somebody commented back and said, essentially, that's silly. Of course, we're already reigning. This person quoted from Ephesians, where it says we are currently seated in with Christ in the heavenlies, above all principalities and powers, and this, this sort of thing. I was struck by a profound sense of disappointment uh, that if this is already us reigning in the kingdom, it's not a very effective reign. In fact, what I replied to this person was, why don't you go ask your neighbor if he or she thinks you are ruling currently and see if your neighbor will do what you tell them to do I bet they don't recognize your authority. And so it is. But when Jesus comes, people will recognize the authority of Jesus and his people that he puts in positions of authority. Uh, It's not going to be limited to just the church as it is currently. So anyhow, some good thoughts there. Also, Laura writes in on Offscript episode 11. It's an old episode back from 2016 where we talked about the subject of the Sabbath and resting from from work. And essentially, we were arguing that whether you're a Sabbatarian Christian or not, it's a good idea to take a day off every week. This is part of God's design that we would be rejuvenated and not work ourselves to the bone. And uh, Laura writes in, God doesn't just say to not work on the Sabbath. He says to keep it holy. 
It is also not any day out of seven. It's the seventh day, the only day God blessed and sanctified. Is it important to keep it? Is it important to not lie, steal, murder, etc.? Is it okay to take God's name in vain, worship graven images, etc.? Keeping the Sabbath is the fourth commandment. It's written in stone and is as important as the other nine. She's giving us a strong point here. Um, we're not to let others work for us on the Sabbath either. Oh, wow, she's really uh, strict here. The New Covenant agreement is the law written on our hearts, the same law as the Old Covenant, but the Old One was written on stone. Jesus didn't change one jot or one tittle of the law. He kept the seventh-day Sabbath, and so should we. Why is there so much debate over this one commandment? It's so clear, and it's also the one outward proof that we are God's children. Wow. All the other commandments can be hidden and not obvious to an onlooker, but keeping the Sabbath is an obvious sign. We cannot choose which day we keep as a Sabbath. There's only one Sabbath, and that is the seventh day, and there's a special blessing to those who keep it. It's quality time spent with God. Well, Laura, I certainly do respect your position here. You're taking a very hardline Sabbatarian stance here. I strongly disagree, though, uh, even though I can see where you're coming from. You're reading the Bible as if it's flat, as if you can quote from Deuteronomy 4, Exodus 20, and say this is fully relevant for all people for all time. It doesn't matter that the Christ event has occurred. Uh, Or maybe you would say, because the Christ event has occurred, it has uh, enabled us to be even more strict about keeping the Sabbath. Um, But uh, I would just turn your attention to read really any of Paul's writings, um, Romans, Galatians, uh, or also Hebrews, probably not written by Paul, but Hebrews uh, makes a strong case as well that these things are, have, have met their fulfillment in Christ, that they were there for Israel, and that now we are under a new covenant ratified on the cross through our Lord's blood. And so there's been a change of priesthood, and there has been a change of people. There's been a change of the sacrifice, the sacrificial system, and so on. So we cannot read the Bible flatly. Uh, there, there are developments, and the Sabbath is one of those developments. Uh, even so, I, th- I stand by what we say in this episode. I think if you work uh, seven days a week, or what I like to call it, eight days a week, uh, that is, you don't take any days off at all, uh, that you will find yourself burned out. I do stand by that. I've certainly experienced that in the past. Um, but this whole business of keeping the Sabbath, I think, is just incompatible with the writings of the Apostle Paul. We've seen that circumcision avails nothing, and that as Gentiles, when we were brought into the church originally, even in the the sort of embryonic stage that Acts 15 represents, there was still no Sabbath required of us. So uh, I'm going to just rest my case there. Uh, A number of other folks and friends do wrestle with this issue. I, I certainly do see that it can be a contentious issue. And um, maybe we should have more episodes on this, maybe get some debate going on this. If any of you, dear listeners, would like to debate this issue, I think I've got a friend or two who would take the non-Sabbatarian side. Uh, So if you're a Sabbatarian and you really want to make your case, maybe we should have a debate on this. Uh, Why not comment on this episode? Come on to restitudio.org and let me know that you're willing to take this battle on. 
we'll see what comes of it. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We'll catch you next week where we get back to our theology class. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.